The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. This scripture reading today is from Exodus 3, verse 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael, and good morning, everybody. Uh, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty good about the idea of inching out of the pandemic and uh, reopening everything uh, over time. And I am especially thrilled to see these tables. Uh, in front of me. If, if you are new to Christ Pres, we actually had a number of people new to Christ Pres in the last 14 months or so. One of the very best things that we get to enjoy as a community every week is celebrating communion around these tables. And I can't wait for you to experience that in the same way that I can't wait for me to experience that and for us to experience that. Uh, it's one thing I have sorely missed. Um, I want to thank you. I want to join Lee Eric in thanking you for being a church that has been easy to love and to lead. Not all churches have been easy to love and lead. 
in the last 12 to 14 months. This church has been easy to love and lead. We're grateful for your cooperative spirit. We're grateful uh, for your support of, of leadership that has had to adapt many, many times in the last 14 months in response to the latest whiplash, uh, you know, bit of news or information. And uh, I just could not be more grateful uh, to be able to pastor and lead and be part of a church like Christ Presbyterian. So thrilled about the next year. So thrilled about the future. Uh, but for now, uh, we're going to orient our hearts and our minds and our focus again to the man named Moses. This is our third message in a 10-part series on the life of Moses. And here we get to the famous incident of the burning bush. And among many other things, this incident shows us that Christianity is a religion of sequence. Sequence. That sounds like a strange statement. What I mean is this, God orders certain things in a certain fashion. I'll give you a few examples. New birth, spiritual birth, new birth has to come before a changed life. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. We also see this in the famous incident in John chapter 3 where Jesus says to a man named Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless God births something inside of you, you will never see, experience, or understand the kingdom or the life of God. So new birth has to come before a changed life in the same way that affirmation has to come before repentance. We're going to see this when we look later at the Ten Commandments, which begin with the statement, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I have loved you. I have set my heart and my affection on you. Therefore, change. We have no capacity to change our lives, our ethics, the way that we conduct ourselves until we start understanding how deeply we have been loved. So affirmation has to come before repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, Romans tells us, not our repentance that leads God to be kind. Third example, agony before victory. So last couple of weeks, we covered the first two chapters of Exodus, which themselves, these two chapters, cover 400 years of Israel experiencing tribulation. The next 38 chapters cover one year of, e of Israel experiencing deliverance and liberation from Egypt. Agony before victory. Even Jesus Christ spent 33 years, the Bible tells us, learning obedience through the things that he suffered. 33 years to prepare for three days of being crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, and then risen from the dead. So agony comes before victory. But here's the supremely important sequence that we're going to focus on today. The question, who is God, has to come before the question, who am I? And we have that reversed in the modern West, especially the American West, we ask the question, expressive individualists that we are, who am I to answer every other question? 
Our question, who am I? In other words, when I decide what my truth is, then I will decide who God is and what God is like and what the world is like and, 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 and what ethics are and what's good and true and right and beautiful. The first question is, who am I? I am the center of the universe. I am the sun around which everything and everyone else, including God, must orbit. But it's a perilous thing to create a definition of God and truth and beauty and goodness based on who I think that I am and decide that I am. You know, Voltaire famously said that in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ, says that will not do. In the beginning, God created, Genesis tells us. Genesis 3 tells us specifically, God created man and woman in his own image. We don't know or understand who we are, what we're about, what our purpose is, what our reason for existing is until we understand who God is. We are made in his image. And so that's the first question that Moses shows us we need to be asking. Who is God? And then from that, Moses also gets the answer to the question, who am I? So those are the two points today. Who is God? Who am I? And then I'm going to give you a bonus point, an invitation to reconsider the significance of your life on the basis of the answer to those questions. So first, who is God? Here's God's answer. He is who he is. I am who I am, period. Wait, what do you mean by that? No, I am who I am. But can you explain? I am who I am. Any, any footnotes? Any, I am who I am. He exists eternally. He is immutable. In other words, you can't quench him out. You can't snuff him out. You can't destroy him. You can't declare that he is dead. He's unquenchable in his being and his character. His being and his character, his nature, are fixed things. I, the Lord, do not change, the scriptures tell us. The bush, the burning bush, is, is an illustration of several things, one of which is who God is and what God is like. It says later in uh, another book of Moses, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, that God is a consuming fire. And here you have a bush that is lit on fire, but it, it's not reduced to ashes. It's not burning up. It's not becoming smaller. And if you're like me, you've started to fire up the grill. And if you're like me, you're a purist. You use coals, you don't use gas. And when you use coals, they are reduced to dust. In the same way that when you put fire in a fire pit or fire in a fireplace, the wood is reduced to dust. This bush is not reduced. If anything, this bush is amplified and animated by the fact that it is on fire but it's not burning up. Part of what this illustrates is this. God himself can only consume, but he, his, he himself is never consumed. He's a consuming fire who is never consumed. And this directs us to a couple of things that help us answer the question, who is God? First, his godness Second, his grace. First, his godness. 
Moses is told, you are standing. The place where you are standing is holy ground. That word holy points to God's otherness. It points to his transcendence, his better thanness, his higher thanness, his greater thanness. And the voice from the bush says, take your shoes off. Because the place you're standing is holy. The place you are standing, the dirt on which you stand, you need to understand that the dirt on the bottom of your feet is unworthy of that dirt. So take your sandals off. Wherever God is, it is no place to be cavalier. You are standing in the danger zone, Moses. You are standing in a death zone. So be careful. You're standing right on top of a landmine. God is a consuming fire who does not change. 19th century Scottish minister Alexander McLaren says this, Because we live, we die. But God lives forevermore. He is a flame that does not burn out. Therefore, his resources are inexhaustible. His power unwearied. He needs no rest for recuperation of wasted energy. He gives and is none the poorer. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. And through the ages, the fire burns on, unconsumed and undecayed. So what's the effect of this bush that doesn't burn up on Moses? The initial effect is curiosity. Moses says, I will turn to see this strange thing, this, this burning bush in the middle of nowhere, I will turn to see. It stirs his curiosity, but then when he looks, it stirs fear. When God speaks from out of the bush, it says that Moses then turns away. It reminds one of the angels in Isaiah chapter 6. Angels are morally perfect, impeccable creatures. And yet even they cannot bear to look at the vision of the glory of God that they receive in the temple of God. It says that the angels took their wings and they covered their eyes when they saw a vision of God. When God speaks, Moses turns away. Verse 6, it says that Moses hid his face, a lot like Adam and Eve hid from God and his voice in the garden. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You know, Habakkuk was one of the minor prophets in the Bible. The first chapter of Habakkuk says that the eyes of God are too pure to look on evil. But what we learn here is that the eyes of a human being are too evil to look on the purity of God. So that's his godness. He's not messing around. He's a consuming fire. He's holy. He's other. But he's also a God who is full of grace. Whose grace abounds even to the chief of sinners. Whose grace is greater than all of our sin. Whose grace superabounds wherever there is sin in the lives of his people. What made Moses afraid to look at God was the statement, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. So here's a little bit of context. Moses actually wrote the authorized biography of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's all there in the book of Genesis. All three of these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are what my wife likes to call a mixed bag. We are all a mixed bag, Patty likes to say. We're all train wrecks and the image of God. We are all beautiful and a hot mess, all at the same time. We do amazing things and make amazing contributions, and we make things worse. We're a mixed bag. So part of the downside of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was that all three of them, even though they are named as patriarchs, as fathers of the faith, all three of them committed egregious things. Two of them were complicit in the abuse of women who also happened to be their own wives. Doesn't get much worse than that. One of them was filled with deceit. So these realities must have stirred in the authorized biographer the memory of his own life and the reason why he was currently and for the last 40 years in exile because he had run from a death sentence, because he had murdered a man. He had murder in his background and he ran from the law in order to get away from the just punishment. And so here Moses is in the middle of nowhere found out, not by the government, not by Pharaoh, but by his creator who knows everything and who sees everything. And so, of course, he's afraid. And yet, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses encounters the fire of God and, like the bush, is not consumed. He's not decimated. He's not diminished. And, 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 and to add to that, the next word from God out of the bush is remarkable. It's a word of comfort and compassion. Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them from Egypt into the good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. I have chosen you, Moses, for the honor of leading them. This is a pattern all throughout the Bible. David, Saul of Tarsus, Moses, these are all Three people who had two things in common. Number one, they murdered people. They committed the most awful offenses against their fellow image-bearing human beings. All three of them murdered innocent people, you guys. And all three of them were called by God to be ambassadors of life. As God's messengers. That's how big the grace of God is. In verse 15, he calls himself the Lord. The, the name for God that's used here is the familiar name Yahweh, which is the name that, that, that communicates God as a covenant-keeping God. He is faithful even when we are not. He is faithful especially when we are not. 
He is the faithful God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of these train wrecks, these moral train wrecks, the faithful God to unfaithful people, to Moses. And so, Moses, I'm sending you. This is my name forever, faithful God, covenant-keeping God, true to you even when you're false toward me, tender toward you even when you're violent toward your neighbor. That's how big and significant and seismic my grace is. I am aggressive with my mercy. That's who I am. That's what it means to be me. This is how I intend to be remembered. I am a fire who will not reduce sinners to ashes because I love them. So, that's who God is. He's scary. And he's your protector. All at the same time. So who am I on the basis of this? So C.S. Lewis called himself a most reluctant convert. C.S. Lewis kind of went kicking and screaming into the family of God. He didn't want to believe this stuff. And in fact, he described his former life as an atheist, as a man who had been angry at God for not existing. So just metabolize that for a second. Angry at God for not existing. So, so C.S. Lewis becomes this reluctant convert because of the friendship he had with, with Tolkien, which is another story for another time. But in terms of reluctant converts, Moses actually is the one who takes the cake. You know, Moses makes C.S. Lewis look like the most eager convert in the world. Reasons why Moses is reluctant, there are several of them. Number one, God, I am a nobody from nowhere. I think you've got the wrong person. Surely it is not I who is supposed to lead a whole nation of people out. The mighty hand of Pharaoh. I've been exiled from Pharaoh for 40 years. I've grown pretty comfortable and pretty chill in my life out here in the wilderness as a shepherd. I'm 80 years old. I'm old. I'm a nobody from nowhere. You know, Moses used to be Somebody, or what, what the world would call somebody. He was a son of royalty. He had been adopted into the house of Pharaoh, ironically. He was a son of royalty. But for the last 40 years, he's been in exile. He's been a refugee and a shepherd in the fields. At one point in his life, and this is a distant memory by now, Moses lived in the capital city of Egypt. But for the last 40 years, he's been living in a place called Horeb, that's the, the name of the mountain that he lives on and, and does his shepherding in, is Horeb. Horeb means wasteland. Imagine if that's where you were from. Hey, man, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the wasteland. Sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song, right? Badlands, right? There's nothing attractive about Horeb. It's a plot of cheap dirt. It was inexpensive real estate. It wasn't even on the map. It surely didn't resemble Davidson or Williamson County or the it city of Nashville. It's more like Grundy County, the county that you forget, the county that you never think of, the county where meth is produced. That's where this happens, in, in that kind of obscure place. I'm a nobody from nowhere. If you'd have come to me 50 years ago, maybe I'd have thought, yeah, I'm the guy. But not anymore. 
The other thing about Moses is he's got a disability. He needed a speech therapist. In a time where he had no access to speech therapy. If we go to chapter 4, he continues with this who am I line of questioning to such a patient God. And he says, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow to speak. I'm slow of tongue. And and if you go down into the the Hebrew language, it, it, it indicates that Moses had something like a severe lisp or a severe stutter. And now you're, you're calling me to speak truth to power? You're, you're calling me to, to preach Israel out of Egypt? You're calling me to use my lips? When I, I feel nervous every time I open my lips because I don't know what my stutter is going to do. I don't know how my lisp is going to embarrass me because I have no control over my lips. It's almost like you're mocking me, God. I'm a disabled man. And then, of course, he's got his social anxiety on top of that, which was probably at least partially formed by his disability. He says, please send somebody else. He prefers to fly under the radar. But here's how God comes back to Moses. Two things. Number one, you don't get to name yourself. You don't get to decide what your capacities are. You don't get to say to me what your potential is because you don't make me and you don't make you. I make you. I am and I make you. So you don't get to say or decide what your own capacities are. In chapter 4, God says to Moses, who made your mouth? a rhetorical question. The answer is, God made his mouth. Who made your mouth? Now go. I will be with your mouth, and I will tell you what to say and when to say it. Who is God? He is your maker who loves to empower weak people to do significant things, whether it is a quiet, private, under-the-radar, unseen significant thing, like the things the, 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 the faithful, daily, ordinary, over the course of 40 years, acts of love that you do in your own household, that's extraordinary. Or for some people, like Moses, God might even uniquely call you to be a world changer. But you don't get to say that you can't if God says that he will through you. The second thing that God communicates to Moses is that you don't get to determine the significance of your place. I know you're asking yourself, can anything good come out of Horeb? Can anything good come out of the wasteland? That question will be asked again in a few centuries by a young fool named Nathaniel. And I will help him understand as well that, yes, good things can come out and do come out of extraordinarily ordinary places. Verse 12, God says he will work through Moses to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage. And then then he says, after that, you will serve me again, Moses, on this mountain. Pointing back to Horeb, which is later also referred to as Sinai. Sinai assumes a prominent place in the history of God because Sinai is the place where God will later meet Moses again on the mountain And deliver to him what we now know as the Ten Commandments. 
And and Moses will not be consumed by the fire of God then either. Instead, he will come down from the mountain and his face will be glowing, having been lit by the fire of God as he carries these tablets with the Ten Commandments down from Horeb, from the wasteland, also known as Sinai. You don't get to determine, Moses, the significance of your place. You're going to make history here. Because I'm going to make history here. And believe me, Moses, you want in on this. Trust my wisdom for once, would you? You know, wisdom is embracing what God says, even when you're not feeling it. Fools will only embrace things when they feel it. Wise people embrace the wise words of God even and especially when they don't feel it. Just trust me. My word is truer than your feelings. Your feelings are real, but they're not true in this case, Moses. My words are true. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a beautiful commentary on an instance like this where Paul writes to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when God called you. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential or of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. In other words, God ordinarily chooses people who are not divas to accomplish the greatest things. The most unlikely people are the people that God is most likely to do the remarkable things through. So here's your bonus point. It's an invitation to reconsider the significance of your life on the basis of the answer to these two questions, who is God and who am I? read an article just this morning, early this morning, somebody, it landed in my inbox by a woman named Melissa Kruger. Some of you may be familiar with her work. She's an excellent writer, very thoughtful Christian woman. And she's writing especially in this article about the pressure that is applied and and, and imposed upon, in, in her words, Christian women in American society. And here's a little bit of what she says there. What is being said to you, Christian woman, is don't let anyone limit your potential. You are made for more. Your life is up to you. Exercise more. Eat better. Make time for yourself. Cheer others on. Give more. Do more. Try harder. Run faster. Change the world. Solve injustice. Start a nonprofit. Lead a Bible study. Read all the new books. Maybe write one too. Read the classics. Wash your face. Live untamed. It's exhausting. The rest of her essay, she spends talking about the glory of an ordinary, simple, faithful, quiet life. I don't know about you, but it feels like the removal of pressure. When I look at how much is up to God and how little is up to Moses, 
It feels like the removal of pressure rather than the application of pressure. That's another way that you can discern that Jesus Christ is in the room, is that you feel less pressure, not more, to be awesome, to bring it, to not mess up. You feel less pressure when Christ is in the room, not more. Because even though he's a consuming fire, he does not consume because of grace. The impossible things belong to God. So what is your burning bush? Here's where we find our burning bushes. It's all the things that God asks of us in here that feel and seem and appear impossible. What are some examples of burning bushes that God gives us in the scriptures? Live generously. Humble yourselves. Confess your sins one to another. In other words, learn to apologize humbly and often. How hard is that? And on the other side of that equation, forgive when somebody sins against you. Love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love and even pray for your own enemies. But perhaps the most impossible burning bush that the Bible puts in front of us is the one that tells us to believe that we are who God says we are. Remember, who is God has to come before who am I, or else the orbit of the universe goes into magnetic chaos. Here's who God is. He is holy, he's a consuming fire, and he is not ashamed of you. Hebrews 11, he is not ashamed to be called your God. He owns this whiny, complaining, grumbling people, the people of Israel, by saying, I am their God and they are my people. And Moses, you little scaredy cat, you, you, you underachiever, you, who used to be an overachiever, let's meet in the middle here and understand that you can achieve great things when my blessing is on your life. He is a consuming fire, but he's also not ashamed of you. Jesus, not ashamed to be called your brother. Which brings us back to the thing we say here often, and I'm going to keep saying it until I believe it, and also hopefully until you believe it, and that is this. The things that you like the least about yourself are those very things that, that God wants to demonstrate his love for you the most in light of them. What you like least about yourself is where God wants to sweep in and convince you most. That he loves you, that he has adopted you, that he's called you by name, that you are his. That that he will never leave you, forsake you, that he will not let you go. That's what grace means. And he is able wherever you and I feel disabled. I love what St. Augustine said. He says, God always gives what God commands. He always gives to us whatever he commands of us. He will never leave us in short supply when he says, this is the way, walk in it. So the impossible things belong to God, but our work, what is our work? Our work is to remember. This is is the word that Jesus uses when he introduces the Lord's Supper, and I'll do the same today. He says, do this as often as you eat and drink it in remembrance of me. And here in verse 15, Yahweh says, I am to be remembered through all generations. Moses' task 
was to do the difficult, challenging thing and remember the future that God had promised. I am going to lead you out of this bondage that you're in. And I'm going to leave you, lead you in to a land flowing with milk and honey. So I want you always to remember the future that I promised to you. But our task today, thousands of years later, is chiefly to remember the past. Notice here that, that the Lord refers to all generations that are going to benefit from the work that God does through Moses. And here we are, thousands of years later, in a room together in Nashville, Tennessee, on the other side of the world, not in a wasteland, but in an it city, because even it cities are included in God's economy, believe it or not. Even it cities have beloved people in them. It's not just the wastelands. Thanks be to God. Except the wasteland of our hearts, which, which is in every city. The wasteland of the human heart is in every city. God loves to dwell there. God loves to bring life there. God loves to ignite things there in the wasteland of the human heart. And so what are we to remember? Well, look, what God promised to Moses is still being fulfilled. And we're part of a picture of that even right now in this moment. But then there's more to remember. One who is greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, who chose to be a nobody from nowhere. Remember Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer is, of course, everything good came out of Nazareth. Jesus was consumed by the fire of God. He was decimated. He was made disabled even more disabled than Moses when he died on that cross. And, and why did he do that? So that Isaiah 43 could be fulfilled for all of us that when we walk through the fire, we will not be burned. Because Jesus, when he went through the fire, was reduced to the dust of death. And now he makes himself known every single week not through chiefly spectacular moments, but through an ordinary loaf of bread. It's kind of stale, you guys. An ordinary loaf of bread and cheap wine, just like he did in that first supper with his disciples. The body and the blood of Christ. Don't miss what's extraordinary in that which is ordinary. Before we go to the Lord's table, can I ask you to stand with me and we will affirm our faith together from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Let's pray again. Father, thank You for these truths that we belong. That's our identity. Because of who You are, a holy God who is also a God full of grace, whose mercy triumphs over judgment, whose grace is greater than all of our sin. Because that's who you are.
who we are is those who belong. We thank you, Lord, that you seal that belonging by inviting us to a table with you. Lord, we take joy, and even as we take our, feet, our, our shoes off because this, this ground is holy, we also receive it with joy because you've loved us and given yourself for us so that when we pass through the fire, we will not be burned. We thank you for this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.